The scripture reading is going to be Philippians 3, 7 through 11. You can follow along in your own Bibles, or it will also be on the screen behind me. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. This morning, I'd like to begin by telling you one of my favorite stories. You've probably heard parts of this story, and there are a lot more elements to this story that I'm going to share with you today. But one of my favorite characters in church history is John Wesley, the great Methodist, uh, Methodist leader. Uh, he was born in, in 1703, and his father was an Anglican priest. His mother was the daughter of a priest, so he was uh, well entrenched in Anglican doctrine and in the ways of the church. When he was five years old, he was miraculously saved from, a death, from death by an illness. And his mother knew and just held on to the fact that he was going to be used by God of some, in some incredible, powerful way in his life. He became an Oxford scholar and a devout Anglican himself. He joined a religious society at Oxford, and the purpose was to live a more sober, holy life. Uh, they dedicated themselves to having communion once a week. They were faithful in their private devotions. Uh, they visited prisons. They met together for three hours every day for Bible study, and they called it the Holy Club. And you can imagine how this type of methodical approach to their faith soon became, began to, to give them the name Methodists in their faith. And it wasn't, uh, as the early Christians experienced, it wasn't a, uh, a positive thing at first. It was a little bit of a derogatory term, but that's what they were called. Uh, he was, uh, through a series of, of, of encounters with, with church leaders, he felt like he was uh, led to be a pastor to the American colonies. And he really had a special interest in being a missionary to the American Indians. So he got on a boat and headed toward the state of Georgia. Uh, on the boat to America, there were German Moravians on board that boat. And before they got to their landing in the United States, America back then, the colonies, uh, there was a great storm that, that came up. The ship was in peril. And Wesley, along with everyone else except for one group, was terrified. In fact, the Moravians that were with them were calm. And they actually were engaging in a worship service down under the hull of the ship and were singing hymns and praising God throughout this whole thing. And uh, particularly when a wave crashed over the boat and split the sail, split the mast, and water came down into the ship itself, Everyone thought that the ship was dead for sure, but the Moravians kept on praising God and singing calmly as if the assurance 
of their salvation was in their grasp. After reaching Georgia, Wesley sought counsel from a Moravian bishop to try to help him understand the Moravian calmness in the face of the storm in the ship. And I'm reading to you now from Wesley's diary. He said, my brother, this is Wesley's diary. He said, the bishop, my brother, I must first ask you one or two questions. Have you the witness within yourself? Does the spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? I was surprised and knew not what to answer. He observed it and asked, do you know Jesus Christ? I paused and said, I know that he is savior of the world. True, he replied, but do you know that he has saved you? I answered, I answered, I hope he has died to save me. He only added, do you know yourself? I said, I do, but I fear my words were vain. Wesley's doubt still resonates today among many who call themselves Christians. There's abundant religious activity, programs, things done in the name of God. But these programs and these activities often fail to find something that, as Blaise Pascal said, fills that God-shaped void that brings joy and purpose to our otherwise meaningless existence. So many are inventing their own version of God, and, and many have misconceptions of what true biblical Christianity is. As Matthew said, as actually as Jesus said, as recorded in Matthew, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So a couple of things I want to try to approach this morning. What is the Father's will and what does it mean to really be a Christian, a follower of Jesus? Fortunately, the Bible gives us some clear guidance on both of these questions, including our text today in Philippians chapter 3, and there's a sister passage uh, that, that Chris preached about a year ago in Ephesians chapter 1, and I'd like to refer to both of these during the, the, the sermon today, but particularly this Philippians passage, and Paul's words in his passage in Philippians 3 are what I call Paul's heart cry, and I hope you'll see why as we proceed to the sermon a little bit this morning. So let's look at the, the text, Philippians 3, 7 through 11, which was already read. I'm going to read this again, and I use the old version, the 1984 version of the New International Version. I love to use the ESV as well as a reference, and I encourage you to use multiple translations uh, as you study the Bible because you get different flavors of the Greek and Hebrew all accurate, all our interpretations of what's there, but it is helpful to know what others think that these Greek and Hebrew words mean. Uh, but all the same message, but, uh, but mine is going to be from the NIV, the old version. And Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3 is like this, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness that comes from God and is my faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray together before we start. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word and and get a glimpse into your mind. Lord, as we study your word, Lord, I pray that you would move me aside and let your word speak clearly what you want us to hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, in my experience as a follower of Christ, I don't know if you've encountered this or not, but I've encountered a number of people, sadly, who have abandoned their faith in Christ. People I've known well, people I've gone to school with, people I've gone to seminary with, uh, people who were on all appearances and all appearances solid believers. They started well, they demonstrated fruit in their lives, they taught others, even in positions of vocational ministry, such as a pastor, a missionary that I know, even a chaplain, started well, served well seemingly, and then fell by the wayside, began to question and doubt their faith, and soon abandoned their faith. I can't think of a sadder thing than this, Uh, but I think that a significant part of the problem is illustrated in this picture that we have here in front of us. What would you say this illustrates? Getting the cart before the horse. I grew up with, uh, with farm illustrations, as my sister who's here today will tell you. We got them from my grandfather, and uh, one of mine was, uh, one of the ones that we embraced was uh, one that didn't turn out too well in my family. We were, my family meaning Elaine and my children, we were late. We were late often, you know, for, for certain things. And, um, and Elaine, uh, the kids and I were in the car, and we were, we were there waiting to go to church one morning. And um, this was back before we went overseas. And, um, and so a little bit disparagingly, you know, when Elaine came into the car, I said, well, kids, your mom is the cow's tail this morning. The cow's tail. Well, now I knew what that meant. I knew exactly what that meant. You know, the, the cow, the pat, last part of the cow going through the barn, you know, is the cow's tail. So your mother was the cow's tail. Well, Elaine didn't recognize that quite like I did. And uh, I got a look that uh, would fry an egg sunny side up. And, and that was, uh, that was uh, wide awakening to me that I don't always need to use farm illustrations and everything. But this is another one that I think we all can get our hands around, get our heads around, getting the cart before the horse. When we focus on the byproducts of our faith, when we focus on the things that, that we do as Christians, before realizing the relationship that produces these results, we have a real problem, don't we? We expect changed behavior before a renewing of the mind and transformation of the heart. You can't have the former without the latter. Like Wesley, many of us end up doing things for and in the name of Jesus without really knowing him. That's precisely why Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know 
him better, that you may know him better. Does he ask that God may give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may serve him better? So that they may be better Christians? So that they may be more effective in ministry? No. So that they may know him better. And from that knowledge, we become better servants of him. We become better Christians, followers of Christ. We become more effective in our ministries. So the first order of the business, well, I want to examine two things. First of all, first of all both of them uh, revolving around this aspect of knowing Christ. But the first order of business is to look at the power that we have by his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. I'm intrigued by uh, marketing techniques. Uh, we saw a lot of these overseas. For those of you who don't know, Elaine and I just retired from a, from a career of being overseas for 25 years with the U.S. government. And um, we would see commercials overseas. Usually we couldn't understand them in the foreign countries. But we'd see them, but there's no country that gets it quite like the United States does. When we came back, uh, uh, it was a whole new experience of, uh, of reacquainting ourselves with commercials here. But um, there was a commercial, you know, there are commercials that, uh, that they talk about new diets to make you slim or facial cream to make you beautiful or plastic surgery to make you young or that workout gadget or something in your home to make you strong and have that perfect beach body. The problem with these things is they really have no power to change, do they? They have no power to change us. They depend on a, an internal will that we are supposed to bring to the table along with that product, but we don't have that will. We're expecting the product to do it, but we still have to have the will. The same dilemma happens when dealing with our sins and fallen nature. We are all sinful people, every single one of us, and everybody knows this. We know this growing up that we're sinful. Moreover, I believe that each one of us has a particular area of sinful weakness that we tend to struggle with more than other areas. So we are unique in our sin sometimes. For some, those weaknesses become strongholds and very difficult to overcome. That we struggle, we can't seem to overcome them by trying harder, can we? Let's contrast this with the before and after that we see in Peter and Paul. From Peter... We see he came from the uncultured fisherman that defended Jesus with violence at Gethsemane. He denied Jesus three times at the cross to a man who became the evangelist at Pentecost, the rock of the new church, apostle for the church. And in Paul, from the legalistic Pharisee, assisted, assisting in the stoning of Stephen, rounded up. Christians to imprison and kill them, to become Jesus' missionary to the Gentiles, an apostle, an author of 13 at least, 13, perhaps 14 books of our New Testament. What is required? What is it that unleashes this kind of power in our lives that we need to be able to change and transform as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds? Back to Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes, I pray also that the eyes of your heart 
may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his inglorious inheritance in the saint, and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. It's that power that we need within ourselves that we don't have within ourselves, the power of Christ, the power that we get when we know Christ, when we draw near to him. In James 4, it says, draw near to him and he will draw near to you. It's that nearing, nearing element, that, that getting close to Christ that gives us the power that we need as the Spirit fills our life with the things of Christ to be different people. The eyes of your heart enlightened. Let's take that point first. Uh, the heart, the, the, the Greek word for this is dianoia in, in, uh, in Ephesians. And it's encompassing the mind, thinking, heart, the way you feel, reason, understanding, all of those. It's the thorough, full-breath full reasoning that incorporates all sides of a matter to reach a personal conviction. It's this thing, this thing that's our heart that Paul talks about having the eyes of it enlightens. It's necessary. We need this. This is the thing that we experience when we come to Christ in the first place, is that the Holy Spirit reaches out to us and, and softens our hearts to him and shows us who he is, and we come to faith in him. We'll talk more about that later in this sermon in a more practical way, a more, more uh, exemplified way. But it also involves understanding, feeling, desiring. The Old Testament prophets give us a glimpse into this. Uh, in Jeremiah 31, the prophet writes, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So no longer are they going to be bound by external regulations that they have to try really hard to follow. But God has written these laws, these, these, these thoughts of himself on their hearts, drawing people near to him. They bring it with them wherever they go. In Deuteronomy, uh, it's, it, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So this notion of the heart is critical as we come to the element of, uh, of the, the, the importance of, of knowing Christ. Contrast this with those whose hearts are not enlightened. As we see in Ephesians chapter 4, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. Experience this kind of trans transformative power also involves understanding the hope to which he has called us. In Ephesians chapter 1 again, beginning up again in verse 18, Paul writes, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may, that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. In ordinary English, I think you and I would agree that hope involves a degree, a degree of uncertainty, doesn't it? It's uncertain. We don't know yet whether this is going to transpire, what's going to take place. We hope it does. You know, I, I didn't do my homework last night, so I hope the teacher doesn't give a pop quiz today. I hope my 401k does better this year than it did last year. I hope she says yes when I asked her to go out with me, and then she says, I hope he asks. 
I hope the Dallas Cowboys will win the Super Bowl. Well, we know that's not going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen, but I hope it turns out okay. This is not the kind of hope that, that we're talking about here in the Scriptures. In the Bible, hope is not wishful thinking, but confident certainty. It's putting your trust in God's promises, being fully confident that God has your back, knowing deep down that your future is completely secure, regardless of what challenges or trials may come, and they will come. And what do we hope for? We hope for the riches of his glorious inheritance, his being Christ's glorious inheritance. We are heirs with Christ. We hope that this will be the case, and in that hope, we are certain that it will be the case because he has promised it so. And we also hope that we will have his incomparably great power as we live this life as a follower of Jesus. Hope is indeed one of the most pure expressions of our faith. It allows us to live beyond ourselves. It frees us from the preoccupation with self that we're so caught up in so often to love God and others well without worry. It allows us to focus on God's purposes for our lives without fear of the unknown. Also, moving on to a third area, it's important to recalculate our sense of value to know Christ. Recalculate the sense of value. Let me explain what I'm I'm talking about here. Let me go back to Philippians for a moment. Philippians 3, 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. I can't really express how important this recalculation of our value system is when it comes to drawing nearer to God and knowing Jesus more deeply. Weighing and understanding in my life decisions uh, make the ultimate value of choices for us. Really, when we weigh the value of things, that's the thing that determines what our choices are going to be, doesn't it? Jesus puts it this way. He explains it this way in Matthew chapter 13, 44 to 46. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and settles all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. You know, Paul's assessment of his former life, and he goes on and on about that former life prior to this passage that we read, where he was a Pharisee, all of the things that he had accomplished as a Pharisee. He was on the trek to the, uh, to the, the fast lane, to the Sanhedrin. He was, he was uh, a big guy when it came to Jewish, uh, Jewish authoritative religious structures in, in Jerusalem at that time. But according to him, his assessment of his former life uses the word scubalon. And what you read this morning, what we read was the word rubbish. And rubbish really means in this form of the word, rubbish, garbage, 
table scraps, something without value, something you would throw away, something that you would discard. That happens to not be the most common usage of this word, however, in Greek texts across the board. The most common use of this term in Greek texts is, is human excrement, meaning something that is with value, without value at all can be tossed away, but is also revolting. Paul considers that former life, all the things that he'd accomplished, all the goals and aspirations that he'd had before to be revolting in light of the things that he was gaining in Christ. You know, an example of uh, recalibration of values and and others that we see in the Bible is is found in what I call a roll call of faith in Hebrews 11. I'm not going to read that whole roll call for you, but I want to read just what it says about three people. The writer of Hebrews says, By faith Noah, when he warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a while. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Finally, one of the other critical elements of this transformative power, I believe, is obedience. Obedience starting with what we already know to do, obedience. John 14, 21, Jesus says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Show myself to him. Obedience results as we obey Christ and follow Him and follow that next step of obedience and that next step of obedience, it also transforms our value system. The more we obey, the more we transform. It brings to us a new measure of, of morality, of conduct, of what we consider to be success, of reality. If you look at Ephesians 6, a reality. It's a surrender of ourselves to Christ in every way, every element. As uh, James mentions in chapter 2, faith without works is dead. And our faith in Christ without obedience to him in the same way falls flat. So what does obedience mean to you and to me? I mean, it could be making a relationship right. Spouse, friends, neighbor, one of your children, a parent. It could be putting the welfare of your family above your own aspirations in life. It could be bringing your personal habits in line with God's desire for you, God's best for you. It could be standing up for what's right at work and perhaps paying the consequences for it. It could be allowing Christ to be Lord of your checkbook. That's a a painful one sometimes, isn't it? Considering a new ministry role within the church or out of the church. Stepping out in faith to follow Christ anywhere. It could be confession of sins to others, sins that we've hidden, that we are afraid 
to reveal. But the fact is, most of us are afraid of complete obedience, aren't we? We we have some level of fear of what that's going to entail, where it might lead us, what we might have to give up, the unknown. We prefer instead, our flesh prefers, let me put it that way, instead, a religious system rather than a personal accountability that comes from knowing God. So what do we do with those hard words of Jesus then when we look at it this way? Matthew 6, 24, 16, 24 notes Jesus is saying, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And then in Luke 6, he again says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things which I say? So obedience is critical, I believe as well, in knowing him. When we cling to those misplaced hopes and false securities. We focus on the exercise of a Christian faith that becomes appeasing God rather than knowing Him. So what do we do? What can we do to satisfy the requirements, we think, and then get on with our life, hanging on to what we do to make ourselves safe and satisfied? Essentially, when we do that, it's no different than any other religion that we come across. Doing something to appease God so that we can have what we want. I think at this point, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good place to, to share what we hope in. You know, the Christian's hope is so different The follower of Christ's hope is so different than anyone else in the world. Any other religion, any other sect, any non-believer, basically we're we're not a set of rules, are we? We're not a set of rituals and requirements. We're trying, you know, we're we're we've all sinned against God. All of us are sinners. We all know this and we continue to sin. But because God is holy, our sin has separated us from him. There is no human means that will bridge this gap between us and God. And we find ourselves in this dilemma. How do we, how do we deal with this? We couldn't, so God did it for us. He came into the world. He took on himself the burdens of the world. He lived a perfect life. He took sin on himself when he died on the cross for our behalf. He took our sin on himself. And in doing so, he wiped clean the slate for us. He made it possible for us to once again have, or for the first time ever, to have a clean relationship with God. He made it possible for us to know God. He was raised again to life authenticating him as the savior of the world and giving us hope, that same kind of hope that I talked about earlier, that we will have the same resurrection. We will be raised again to a new life. And those who trust in Christ are now free to live free from sin's power and can know God in an ever-deepening and personal way. This is our hope. This is what we believe. This is what makes us who we are, not the fruits of the Spirit which demonstrate what we are. If we don't have the fruits of the Spirit, if we don't live out this Christian life 
in ways that, 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 we, that, we, uh, that we know God wants us to do in ministry, in actions, in purity, in holiness, and in, in, in righteous, righteous deeds, then there's got to be a question of do we really know him? Do we really know him? But remember, we're getting the horse in its proper relation to the, cor- to, to the cart. We have to know him before anything else comes out of this relationship. Well, let me get back to Wesley for a minute. Finish up the story with him. In short, John Wesley failed in his ministry in America. Surprise, surprise. His outreach to the Native Americans did not succeed. Uh, His local congregation he found to not be committed, to be very lifeless. He was discouraged with them, but he fell in love with a woman in his congregation But he failed to move on that love and wouldn't ask her to marry him. So she married another. And that didn't set very well with him. He was very unhappy about that. So he publicly admonished her from the pulpit, uh, pretty brutally, I understand. And then he denied communion to her. Well, her husband wasn't very happy with that at all. And so he filed suit against John Wesley for defamation of character. And this broiled out of control until finally John Wesley, by cover of night, had to flee, going back to England, despondent, questioning his faith, doubting his faith, doubting his salvation. He reestablished a relationship with his Moravian friends, who he kept on and off contact with through the years, because he highly respected them for the reasons I've already explained. Uh, And it led to this experience that he had at Aldersgate Church. And it goes like this in his diary. I went in the evening very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans about a quarter before nine o'clock while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that would have taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. John Wesley finally meets Jesus. A personal faith that satisfies and transforms And I love John Wesley's story so much because it echoes my own in so many ways. Uh, I was raised a a preacher's kid. We we were in Sunday school, church. We were in church four or five times a week. Uh, We we got sick of church, training union, Sunday night worship. We, as the pastor's kids, had to be there, you know. Um, And I could quote you more Bible scripture when I went off to college than anybody you could see. Uh, However... I knew all of these things in my head. I'd been raised in them and trained in them, knew what was right and wrong, professed faith in Christ, but I lived like there was no tomorrow. I made it my point to try to to convince everyone that I was not a preacher's kid. And this went on until I was um, two years into college, three years into college, and ended up dropping out of college because I had gone like the wild kid in the prodigal son and parted all his money away. And despondent at the age of 21, I was in my parents' house, 
and I saw sitting on the cabinet there a living Bible. I don't know if you know what the living Bible is. It's not even a translation. It's a paraphrase of the scriptures. But I saw that and something moved me. And I know it now it was the Spirit of God moved me to pick that Bible up. And I simply started reading that Bible. That's all I did. No great prayers, no great fanfare, just started reading the Bible. And as I read God's Word, paraphrased, but God's Word, all I can say is that God strangely warmed my heart. All of a sudden, my life of faith became alive. It became real to me. Those things that I'd learned since a child came to life. And I knew what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Well, let me spend just a brief moment here on a second part. I know we're about out of time here, but I wanted to, to look at, I don't think we can address this topic of knowing Christ fully without taking that last part of verse 11 that we read and talk about the suffering, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Uh, Paul writes again in verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, I like to use the example of uh, our children, you know, uh, raising kids. Uh, In the early years, it's inconvenient, isn't it? I know we've got a lot of parents in here, and I love to see those babies now. I love to look at them and see their faces and, and try to see mom and dad in those babies somehow. It's hard to do it until they get a little bit older, but it's just a precious thing, isn't it? But it's inconvenient. They're diapers. They don't sleep like we sleep. There's feeding sessions to take. Then they get into the childhood years, and then those, I think, are the exhausting years where you have school functions and and athletic events and all of that kind of thing. And then you move into teenage years, which often there, certainly in my case, when I was a teenager, for my parents, it was insanity. Insanity, because they're trying to feel who they are, who they're going to be. There's that that authority trying to get a grip grip on, on proper proper respect for authority, it's, it's tough. Those early adult years can also be a frustration and a heartache, can't they, as well? As our kids go off to college and we see them make mistakes, tough things, things that we'll know, we know they're going to have to deal with later, but it's frustrating. So why do we do this thing as a parent? Why do we have children? Who knows? <laughs> I think it's hardwired into us as parents from the, one of the early commandments, probably the earliest commandment that God gave us was to procreate the world, was to fill the earth. And I think that's hardwired in us. We're drawn to parenthood, and there's really no love like it is there. In fact, for me, having my children, it was a, a, a fast track into better understanding. Not the only way, but better understanding the love of God for me, for his children. When we have children, we learn this a little bit. We know this in a more real way in some areas. Before kids, it was kind of irritating for me to be around kids. I don't know about you. I have a confession to make. But I couldn't relate to people who had children before I had children. 
after there's a fellowship that I have now with people who have kids. There's that fellowship of suffering, that fellowship that I know what you're going through, but man, is it worth it. Man, is it worth it in the end. And it's worth it through the, through the, through the journey as well because we learn more about what it's like to be uh, like God as we love our children. We can identify. We can walk in each other's shoes. And it's that way with suffering as well. Becoming a disciple of Jesus means suffering. Now, most of us here in this environment have not suffered, have we? Really, not, not like they have in places where, where the gospel is outlawed. Some places where we've traveled overseas, where you can't have church openly and freely. And if you do, you're arrested, thrown in prison, or worse. But there will be a time in some level, on some level, where we are all called at some point to suffer for Christ. And we need to be ready to do that. Not just ready, eager to do that. Because in doing that, there's a special fellowship that we have with Christ. There's a special fellowship that we have in suffering for the cross. Look at the roll call of suffering. I'll use that roll call theme again. We have Jeremiah in, in the Old Testament, the prophet, weeping prophet they called him. Church history says he was sawed in two. John the Baptist, beheaded by Herod. Paul was beaten, stoned, whipped, and executed by Nero. John, tortured, exiled to the island of Patmos. Peter, church history says, he was, or church tradition says, that he was crucified upside down. And then, of course, Jesus, who died taking on the sins of the, of the world to himself. So as Christians, as we walk with him, can we assume that we are any better, that we are above any of these? Paul writes to the Galatians in 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a plague in modern Christianity and we've heard it from this pulpit before, and it is so true. And I must mention it before we close. But it's that plague that says Christians will always be prosperous. That Christians will always be healthy. That there will always be an answer to every question. That everything will always turn out good in life for the Christian. I call this cheap believism. Trite faith. Because Paul says in Philippians 1, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. The fact is, when we take on that cross of Christ, while we have a peace that passes all understanding and an assurance of salvation and a hope and the knowledge of what we're going to be and who we are in him and that, that filling of that unfillable void our life is often more difficult, isn't it? It's often more difficult in this life. I like the t-shirt where it has the fish going the different direction from all the different sea animals like sharks and barracudas. That's us, the fish, going against that, that harsh grain. But that's our life. Obedience and suffering doesn't sound like a good deal, does it, on the surface? But we experience 
salvation when we go to the cross. We experience power when we suffer in obedience to the cross. And we experience the greatest imaginable joy when we know him through the cross. As I close, I want to share a story with you. It's a, it's a true story about me. Uh, sorry, I've given a lot of information about myself this morning. Uh, I don't normally do that, but, uh, but I don't know a lot of you, and I wanted you to kind of know these couple of things about me here. This one in particular, I think it's a, a reflective of, of a point of discipleship in my life that was very important. I was a summer missionary when I did come to Christ, and I went on and transferred to Hardin-Simmons University where I met my, my wife. I was a summer missionary to Morocco there and served there all summer long uh, doing youth ministry uh, with a church in Rabat. And um, it was a difficult summer. I had never done any kind of ministry like that formally before, and I had a large learning curve, a big learning curve to, to, to tackle. Fortunately, I had a couple of missionaries that really were helpful, but it was tough. And, um, and I was having a difficult time, but one day I went to, um, we frequent frequented this place often, but there was this rug market. They called it a souk in Arabic. But it was a market that didn't just sell rugs. They sold wonderful things that they made, leather goods, pottery, brass items. And while I was going around through this market, there was this little boy. And uh, this is not the little boy, but it's one that looked just like the one that's the smallest one there. There was this little boy that came up to me and wanted to sell me something that he had trying to peddle, you know. Obviously, he was part of the sales team of the group, but he had obviously made this little mirror. He had crafted it himself, and you can see it's a very crudely made thing, but, it, but, but he's had some instruction, and he knows what's going on here, so he's learning, and I was touched by this kid. I, I looked at him, and I, I would have paid him $10 if he'd asked for it. Uh, it was something very cheap, so I bought the thing, and, uh, and, of course, he was delighted that I would buy it so quickly without trying to bargain with him or anything. So he was excited, and then he ran off. And me, Mr. Joe Tourist, loves to take pictures, and I wanted to try to find him and take his picture. So I took off also into the market looking for him and trying to find where he was. Uh, I kept find, looking at uh, shops that had rugs and leather, but then I came around a bend, and there was a whole alley of shops that specialized in the most beautiful brass work that you could imagine. Incredible workmanship. Brass works that, uh, that you would pay thousands of dollars for in other countries. And I came across one little shop, and there was a man working in that shop, and lo and behold, in the back of that shop was this little boy. This little boy kind of watching his dad, looking at him, peering over his shoulder, seeing what he was doing, learning his trade. The boy was spending time in his father's shop. And as he went outside of his father's shop, he was reflecting what he knew, primitive though it was, of his father's workmanship. That's the same approach that we need to be taking in our faith. We draw close to him, he draws close to us. We come to know him better. We know his mind better. As we know his mind, we know what he wants, what he desires for us. We obey. We draw even closer to him. 
And it's a cycle that draws us nearer and nearer to Christ. And it begins, it begins the starting point of our knowledge of Christ with spending time in our Father's shop. Reading His Word. It's a love letter to us. Reading it every day, seeing what He wants to say to us. It's found right there. Reading His Word. Pouring our hearts out to Him. Laying requests in front of Him to see how He'll answer it. And then seeing Him answer in some specific and awesome ways, sometimes in ways we had no idea that He would answer. Making it our heart's cry to know him. You'll be able to say with the psalmist, taste and see that the Lord is good. One of my favorite songs is um, Stephen Curtis Chapman. It's an old song, 1992. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe it's not. It's way before some of you, probably most of you were born in here. But it's called Heart's Cry. That's where I get that term, actually, heart's cry. And let me just read as we close the the text of this. This is my heart's cry. I want to know the one who saved me and gave me life. This is my heart's cry. To be close to him that all my life becomes a testimony of my Savior's grace and love. This is my heart's cry. Now, every other hope and dream is lost inside this one thing, to know the one who died for me and live my life for Jesus Christ is my heart's cry. So let my life become a testimony of my Savior's grace and love. This is my heart's cry to stand before the Father one day and hear him say, well done. Well done. This is my heart's cry. May it be the same for all of us. Let's pray together as we close. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to gather here in your name. And we know that where we're gathered, you are here as well. So, Lord, we pray that we, your spirit would take these words that, that you have given us in your scripture this morning and enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Help us to know you better, to have the proper perspective of our faith so that we can live that fullness of life that we can only have by knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen.